Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Right, welcome to Earned, everyone. Uh, today we have got a doozy. I actually had a really hard time cutting down the questions. I had about twice as many questions as I, as I have now, and I still don't think we're going to be able to get to all of them. Um, so the, the stat I like to say about Scott is there probably isn't a single person in the U.S., that hasn't watched at least one of the shows uh, that Scott helped Greenlight, uh, as well as he is the chairman of the massively successful brand Milk Makeup over the last five years. Uh, so Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Connor. Happy to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am really excited for today. I've been on panels with Scott. Scott and I have become friends, but this is the time I get to ask all the questions I haven't been able to ask in the past um, on, on, on a recorded line, <laughs> which is fun. Um, but just to, I want to tell you guys a little bit about Scott. So he was the president and member of the board for Turner Entertainment, which is TBS, TNT, Cartoon Network, Turner Classic Movies, as well as international properties. You were the CEO at Marvel at one point and helped to launch X-Men and the Spider-Man movies series, uh, president at NBC Entertainment, where you greenlit The West Wing, Law & Order SVU, Scrubs, Freaks & Geeks, CEO at Friendster, president at Hearst, um, and board of ESPN. I mean, the list is unbelievable. Um, it's kind of, I don't know how you fit it all into one lifetime, and you've still got a long ways to go, I think. I uh, know. I, I think it means I'm old, is what it means. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, before we get into your background, you know, I know that you are, I've always thought that your, your views on the future are, are really spot on. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the vaccine and about COVID. You know, now that it's here, it's getting mass distribution. Of course, it's not going as fast as everybody wants, but you know, the, the, there is a line of sight to when it's going to be done. Um, you know, how, how do you think consumers are going to react once everybody is vaccinated? And then how has that changed your guys' approach at Milk? Like, are you making any bets based on based on those views? Well, first off, the answer I wanna give is not a political answer, whether anybody did a good job or anybody did a bad job, is, that's not yep. the point right now. But I, I will point to last week, Goldman Sachs, the day after the riots, the day after the Democrats won the Senate, they increased their GDP estimates for the U.S. from 5.9% to 6.4, which is a huge jump. And in something you would never see written, the first line said, because the Democrats now control the Senate and the House, <laughs> which would normally mean the economy would go in the toilet, they said, we are very bullish on what's going to happen in America. And, you know, there's a lot of people, Scott Galloway is one of them, who thinks, you know, when we get to some more perceived version of herd immunity than actual herd immunity, this is going to be like the roaring 20s. I mean, it's going to be, you know, because sadly, most people that are middle class and up have not been as affected as those people that are in lower incomes. And because of the inability to spend on a lot of discretionary items like movies, amusement parks, going out to restaurants, there's a lot of, you know, surplus money that's out there. And I think it's just going to be an amazing, you know, time uh, that happens whenever that is in April, June, July, August, and it's going to be a whole lot different. Um, so I don't know that it's going to go on forever, though. So we just need to be mindful of that. I will say, you know, we went in, we at Milk went into 2020 with a lot of momentum. 
um, uh, a lot of support from Sephora. We had upgraded to a number of three bay gondolas. We had a front of store takeover. Uh, we had this pop up at Times Square. We had this big collaboration thing with Billie Eilish. And every single one of those things started after March 15th. So we had, we had paid to get them all put up and then <laughs> got none of the benefit. Um, oh. so, but what I will say is if we were to reconstitute all those opportunities, it's a fool's errand to think that whatever you were doing pre-COVID is the same as post-COVID. You know, we saw it took 20 years to have um, e-com, not counting groceries, um, go from, you know, 0% in 2000 to um, basically 18% uh, in 2020. And then once we got to 2020, it took us six weeks to go from 18% to 27%. So a whole decade yeah. happened. So it's it's hard to um, to believe that things are gonna be the same. And I'll give you an example that Sephora stores may open. Um, there's not gonna be testers in the same way we know it. So that was really the distinction between, you know, uh, prestige and mass is that you had testers. So how, how are we gonna adjust to that? How are we gonna animate new products that you can't try on, you know? And, and you know, that the fact that your brand has a red lipstick, well, what does it really look like on your lips versus my lips? And what does it smell like? And, and you know, those things are, we have to figure out how to deal with that. And that's just one aspect of it. Um, not to mention, you know, uh, all of us have to be better at e-commerce across the board, right? E-commerce on our own sites, e-commerce on our third-party sites, um, and, you know, I, I keep pushing the team that everybody says the right thing. Oh, yeah, we got to do e-commerce. We got to do this. But how have we changed our resource allocation? Have mm -hmm. we gotten rid of certain people and added new people? Not really. <laughs> you know, so yeah. uh, the only thing I'd say I'd learned in being in retail for, and, you know, if I haven't been in that long is everything is cause and effect. Nothing happens in the store that you didn't do something to deliberately make something happen. And you can do things and nothing happens, but if something happens in the store, you bet that the brand had to do some kind of thing. So I, I think it's um, incumbent upon everybody to just kind of rethink the whole game and figure out um, how to compete in this world that we're uncertain of. You know, we have certain clues to where it might go, but nobody knows what it's gonna be like. Yeah, the explosion in consumer spending like you, I just think about these restaurants where <laughs> it's like they've kind of had to turtle for a really long time, just kind of buckle down. But once it really does hit at least perceived herd community, I think it's just going to explode. Travel, actually travel is a little mm -hmm. bit more restricted, but travel, food, it's going to be exciting. I think on the resource allocation front, um, this actually reminds me a lot of the interview I had with Kevin last time. Right, so Kevin Gould, they've exploded in revenue, done really well. One of the tactics they did that I thought was wild is they literally direct message every single Instagram follower they have, and it's actually turned into a massive direct sales channel for them. And what we're seeing is I'm hearing from a lot of brands, at least the forward-leaning ones, that they're using their field staff to do that kind of interaction at scale online um, versus having to lay them off or furlough them or whatever. So yeah, there's a lot of innovation happening. It's I think it's I think most organizations still haven't adapted to the fact that things are actually going to be quite a bit different on the other side. Um, yeah, and Tim Tim our new CEO has done a good job of trying different things. I, some of them I'm not sure which ones are secret and which ones are out there, but <laughs> along the lines of redeploying the field staff, doing new things is one of them. But you know, I saw a presentation from I can't remember who it was, but. 
they had these eight categories of spending and it was like, you know, uh, cruising, hotels, airlines, uh, you know, uh, concerts, movies, things that went away, right? And yet GDP spending stayed about the same and you saw the shift of GDP spending. But the two things that were really interesting was they had two bumps and the bumps were pretty material. They were like three or 4% bumps, which is huge on, you know, GDP in any given month. And it was Mother's Day, Mother's Day and Father's Day. And because you weren't going on the bungee jumping trip or you weren't doing this, you had more discretionary income to gift something, you know. And and, and the corollary to that was the huge spike in um, fragrance sales, which hadn't happened in a while, but happened in third quarter, was basically that they're highly giftable thing. There's no shade. There's a perception of value, you know. So uh, the world's, you know, the world's going to change a little bit. And so you've got to adapt to it. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's. I want to take a step back, just because your 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 career in entertainment was fairly prolific. So, I'd love to talk about that a little bit. I mean, coming out of USC, you went kind of straight into the field. What drew you to entertainment? Um, yeah, what drew you to entertainment? Well, um, so it's a it's a it's kind of a funny but complicated story. So, uh, I went to USC, um, and I grew up in a really middle class background in a place called Torrance. And when I went to USC, my parents said to me, do not join a fraternity. So I joined a fraternity, okay? <laughs> and so I, uh, I'm i going to my second football game and at USC, you walk from the campus uh, through this park. And on the way to the park, the guy in front of me, it's 11 a.m. in the morning, is so drunk, he falls in the gutter. And I had to pull him out of the gutter. So I pulled this guy out of the gutter and it was a guy who had graduated the year before who had come back. And he, he saw my pledge print and said, I'm going to remember you. I was in that fraternity. And I said, well, I'm the only Asian guy in any fraternity, so you probably will remember me. <laughs> and um, at the same time, uh, you know, um, this guy was a real operator. He had, um, uh, you know, started a, a newspaper at school that was kind of like Page Six or the National Enquirer called the Row Run. Uh, hmm. He created a business called Brownie Points where these, these brownies I'd give you as a, as a, as a compliment for helping me out or something like that. He was Cosmopolitan Bachelor of the Month. He was a real operator, right? And, yeah. and he was in the entertainment business. And, um, you know, and I'd read an article in the LA Times called Baby Moguls, What Behind the Ears? And it was about all these people that were under 30 that had these gigantic jobs. So I thought, but I found out later that they had big titles and they had to ask, you know, somebody to get their pencil sharpened, but it sounded pretty impressive. They were president of production or whatever. And my father had died when I was five and my first girlfriend died a day before my 16th birthday. So I was obsessed with being successful at a, at a young age. So um, this guy said to me, if you want to start out in entertainment, you have to start out in the mailroom. So uh, coincidentally, I was not a great student. Uh, I was involved in a lot of uh, outside activities and uh, I didn't graduate. I failed, I failed out of college because I had almost enough credits, but my grade point average was on the 2.0. So I didn't want to tell my parents and I decided I was going to go work in a mailroom. And the year I graduated, there was an actor strike, a writer strike and a director strike. So I sat at home making these phone calls, trying to get in the mailroom, and I had no contacts in entertainment. My family didn't have any contacts. And there was a guy named Tom Wilhite who went from being a, quote, low-level assistant to the head of Rogers & Cowan, which was the biggest PR firm in entertainment at the time, to being president of production at Disney prior to Eisner and Katzenberg getting there. 
So um, I started calling Rogers and Cowan along with CAA and, and Warner Brothers and places to get a job. And this woman named Marilyn Marcus would hang up on me every day. So just for sport, I'd call her every day and just call her to bother her. And so one day I call her up and she's really nice to me. She goes, oh, yeah, I, I see your resume here. How soon can you be here? I said, I'm, you know, I, I lived a half hour away, so I'll be there in 30 minutes. So I drive up and I'm sitting in the lobby and this woman comes out to get me. And the only way I can describe it on a scale of one to 10, she was like an 11. And I said, you're Marilyn Marcus, the um, uh, office manager. She goes, oh no, no, she's on, uh, she's on maternity leave. I'm Madeline Marks, I'm a singer. And ironically that week she happened to be in People Magazine <laughs> for her singing. And, oh wow. Um, so I, I, I got this job in entertainment making $150 a week. I was literally, I learned what a low level assistant was. I was just a slave. I uh, worked for the one of the founders. And um, while I was there, the guy I pulled out of the gutter said to me, I don't know if you're smart, but you've listened to everything I said. I work for this guy, Ted Turner in Atlanta, and I'm getting married. You can come and work for Ted Turner. I said, you know, yesterday I was with Paul Newman and Robert Redford and I had to go pick up their laundry and stuff. Why would I leave that, leave this to go into, <laughs> to, to Atlanta? But then I, I met Ted and um, uh, we hit it off and, uh, you know, we became, I don't know how, really close. There weren't that many middle managers at, at Turner. And I, uh, he, there was a party at this cable show and I threw this party at the USC marching band and all this. And he would like love it. He said, I will let you do anything you want to do. I said, in MTV just started, I said, I want to do a music video show, show. He goes, not that, that's devil music. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. And, um, I was in, in sales promotion and I ended up, um, uh, letting me do the show, it beat MTV, and the company lost like $10 million that year, and I made $11 million on my little show on the weekend. And oh, so, wow. um, so one day I, I quit because I got bored being in Atlanta, and I was 25, and I was living in LA, and Ted called me up and said, you need to come back. And I took a red eye, and I'm sitting on the couch in front of the boardroom for, after taking the red eye, he goes, how old are you? I said, I'm 25. He said, you're about to be the youngest person to ever start a cable network and the youngest person probably to ever run one. And he let me, we, we were put up by the cable operators to ruin the MTV IPO. So I started this channel wow. that, um, that then uh, took the MTV stock price from 20 to 13 and uh, it got bought it, and it became, um, it became uh, um, the VH1. And then I thought I'd never work again. And when I was at Turner, I worked at a, I worked on a project called TNT, which was not TNT. It was actually the precursor to the Fox network. We were going to combine the, the Metro Media stations with, or with TBS and turn it into a network. And uh, I did the presentation when I was like 23. And the guy I sat next to was a guy named Jamie Kellner. And Jamie became the first CEO of the Fox Network. So I did the business plan for my, the Fox Network with Barry Diller and Rupert on my little Macintosh. And I worked there and had, um, I, the way I like to describe it, I had one amazing year with Barry and one really nightmarish year with Barry. But uh, <laughs> I ended up leaving. And uh, and I got called um uh, well, actually, because it plays in later, I, I met a guy named Don Olmeyer on the last show I did for Fox, which was the Emmys. And I, I said, uh, you know, after this show airs, I'm going to be fired. And he goes, well, why don't you work for me? So I went to work for Don. <laughs> and, um, uh, and he said I, he had this production company. And um, I went into him one day. I said, Don, I'm really sorry, but I got offered this job to go back to Turner uh, you know, Turner had gone bankrupt on the MGM library, but they allowed him to start this thing TNT. I said, they want me to run TNT. 
And, and Don looked at me and said, Scotty, Ted's crazy. This is never going to work. You shouldn't leave and do it. So I ended up doing it. TNT was the largest cable launch ever. And um, uh, Don, I gave Don a TV movie to do with Faye Dunaway. And at the premiere, he put his arm around me and said, I'm so glad I got you to do this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> after told me not to do it. <laughs> so... Um, so uh, in, in like in this time period um, from 88 to 90, everybody either died or quit in front of me and I ended up um, running entertainment. So I started TNT, Cartoon Network, Turner Classic Movies, those channels around the world. Um, and, and there's a funny story that when I was at Rogers and Cowan in the mailroom, there was a woman who um, w her mom was a movie producer. And I said, I need to meet your mom. And she goes, why? I said, because I want to, I want to produce movies. So she goes, okay. So she sets me up with this woman's mom. I meet her at like 6.30 at night in her office. And I walk in and she goes, what do you, what are you here for? What do you want to do? I said, I want to package movies. And she goes, do you know what that means? I said, I have no idea. And she goes, okay. <laughs> Did, did, did you go to film school? I said, no. She goes, have you ever worked on a movie? No. Have you ever written a movie? No. Have you ever made a movie? No. And you want to make movies. And, and 10 years later in, in, in 1992, Ted Turner gave Amy Pascal and I $300 million. We made Any Given Sunday, You Got Mail, uh, uh, you know, uh, Practical Magic, uh, City of Angels. Uh, you know, so we, we, I got Ted let me do all these things. And cool. then, uh, you know, so it was, it was a great way to, to learn. And, you know, I was on the board of the company and uh, it was great, you know. What, what do you think made Ted Turner so successful himself? I mean, that's a pretty special relationship to have. Well, the thing about Ted was that he didn't get caught in the details. And there's a story I like to tell. Um, we were looking to buy the Hanna-Barbera Library. And uh, it'd been a guy named Carl Linder who, who owned Chiquita Bananas and uh, insurance companies. And he happened to own <laughs> Hanna-Barbera. And uh, the underbids, every studio, Paramount, Disney, Fox, uh, Warner Brothers, all bid between 175 and 225. So I just hired a woman from an Allen & Company, and uh, we were taking a deck over to Ted, and Ted was gonna go meet Carl Linder in a, in a uh, air, airplane hangar in Cincinnati to do the deal. So um, this woman from Allen & Company said, we should have a bid session. I said, okay, watch this. So we go to Ted's office, and he looks at the deck, he goes, this is fantastic, I'm ready. And he gets up, I go, whoa, whoa, before you go, we need to have a bid session. He goes, what's that? I said, uh, well, we, I'm Carl Linder, you're you, and we kind of game out what's gonna happen. He goes, great, and he starts walking me in the group out the door. I go, no, 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 can't do that. Because if you overpay, I'm the board member in charge of entertainment, I'm gonna get blamed, so you need to sit there, and we need to talk about this. So he said to me, well, so I own the Warner Brothers and, and, and MGM cartoons, which are like Bugs Bunny, Tom and Jerry, the best cartoons. What did I pay for those, and how many do I have? So I tell him, and he goes, and how many, how many are there at Hanna-Barbera? And I tell him how many there are. And he goes, 350 million. I said, well, okay, that's interesting <laughs> on a lot of levels. I said, first, you're shitty at math, okay? <laughs> Secondly, those aren't the same kind of cartoons. Third, the underbids are 175 to 225. And so I made him stand there and I finally said, on, on my life, on your kid's life, you have to bid 325 million or less and he agreed and and he he bought the company for 325 we get the company closed we produce this tape we announced the cartoon network and the stock went up a billion dollars 
Every studio head who didn't bid for it called me and said, didn't see it. Now, to make the story even more interesting, when Ted was going bankrupt buying MGM, he traded the UA, MGM UA name and the UA library for the cartoons. Everybody thought he was crazy, but he knew cartoons were valuable. So the, the point of it is, is that all those studios had Harvard MBAs that did discounted cash flow and five other kind of analysis as to the value. But that only told you what it was worth as it was. What Ted Turner, Rupert Murdoch, what those guys were able to do is see what it could be, you know? And that that's what it was. He had really great vision. Literally, he was only in the office two days a month. The rest of the time he was huh. hunting and fishing. And I talked to him and his <laughs> mind was like so uncluttered about this, but it was a great experience, uh, you know, all the way around. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of uh, uh, Richard Branson in terms of his approach, right? I don't think he's ever in an office. Um, probably very different people, but. Um, so let's talk, before we get, I wanna get into kind of all the milk makeup stuff, influencer marketing, but I think one last question. Well, I also wanna talk about your tech, your tech stint for a minute. But um, while you were at NBC, you know, you guys, when you came in, some of the headlines were that NBC was in decline um, and you guys really kind of came out of that, right? As one of the top networks while you were there. And you also greenlit a number of shows that were, you know, I mean, these are all timers, right? SVU, West Wing. Um, one, what do you think caused NBC to come out of that decline? Or what, what would you say caused it to do even better once you took over the entertainment division? And then two, what were the common characteristics of those shows that were really successful? And this is, again, I don't think anybody on this podcast is in entertainment, but I'm just like super curious. It's such a world that I'm, I'm unfamiliar with. Well, well, the one thing I know was such a long time ago that at Milk, at Milk Makeup, if I say I did Friends, they go, oh, that's my aunt's favorite show. She watches the reruns on <laughs> Lifetime or something like that, you know? So um, it was a long time ago. And, and so let me explain the context. I mean, there were a handful of cable networks uh, people didn't have hundreds of channels. They had 40 channels-ish. Um, there used to be a rule in TV that if you can reach 50% of the audience two and a half times or more, that was how you sold a product, a new car, a movie, or whatever. We were so powerful on Thursday night with friends, some show that wasn't good, <laughs> Frasier or Will and Grace, some other show that wasn't good, and ER. And when I say the shows that weren't that good, they were like, just shoot me or whatever. Literally, I could do a sitcom with the two of us, and it, because you didn't have TiVo, you didn't have the internet, you, it, you, you, you had to watch through, you know? And so, so it was, uh, it was all brute force. And in one night, buying three commercials, you can get 50% of America two and a half times. Today, mm. if you run a spot every hour, 24-7, on NBC, CNBC, MSNBC, Bravo, E, you can't do it. Okay, wow. so it was it was a time we were like monsters, you know, so it was a whole different time. And, you know, you weren't programming um, for really the plurality of America. You were programming for, the, for, for any niches. You were just programming for a broad audience, right? Yep, yep. And, I'd like to tell you that I was some kind of programming genius, okay? But there's a, a saying about people at movie companies that if you take all the movies a movie guy made and all the movies he didn't make, they'd add up to the same number, okay? <laughs> you know, and, and and it's really, you know, it's not that you do anything. I used to, the way I would describe it, it's sort of like you walk into 7-Eleven and sometimes you get shot in the head and other times you win the lottery. And it really comes down to TV is not about 
you know, Connor and Scott write a story about their lives and it turns out to be a parasite and it wins the Oscar. That doesn't happen in TV. TV is a, a marathon. It's a hundred episodes. And there's a skill that you learn to be able to protect characters for a hundred episodes. So, you know, somebody like Aaron Sorkin, you, you, you bet Tina Fey, you bet on talent, right? Mm-hmm. That understands mm-hmm. that mechanics and, in, in doing it. But, um, you know, I was number one three out of the four years I was there. And the thing I used to say is, this is barely a fun job. I can't even imagine being number two or number three, what that's like. Because because <laughs> the thing that you got to realize is um, every day in 120 newspapers, your market share gets printed in front of everybody, your grandmother, everybody. You know what you did last <laughs> night. And uh, and everybody looks at you like you had you chose. There was Seinfeld, and then this crappy show, and you chose the crappy show. No, there were two <laughs> crappy shows, and and there there are no other um, creative pursuits that have a statutory amount of product you have to produce. Pay cable doesn't do it. You know when they uh, we were when we did the West when we were competing against The Sopranos. David Chase turned it in wherever he wanted to. Some episodes were 30 minutes. Some episodes were like 70 minutes. You know, he could use language. Aaron Sorkin delivered 22 episodes a year while doing Sports Night, adhered to standards, and put four commercial breaks in. That's hard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a really difficult uh, uh, business, but I, I wasn't out waking out till three in the morning finishing shows. But it's, uh, you know, it was a point in time in life that was really fun. Yeah, no, I'd have to imagine. Well, let's let's talk really quickly before we get into milk about your time in tech, right? Because you you made a kind of pivot at one point and k- took over as the CEO of Friendster, which was like I think the reason it's fascinating to me is it was like one of the first really big social networks, um, and then obviously you know launched your own company, uh, which ironically is named Uber, which but not that Uber, a different kind of Uber. Um, mm-hmm. So what what made you decide to get into tech? And then what made you decide to get out of tech? And what did, what did you learn during that time? Yeah. So um, uh, there was a guy named David Simonoff who was a very successful investor. He got out of Stanford Business School and um, he went to a firm and, and he asked the partners to put money up for these two kids that he knew from um, from being a TA at Stanford. And the two kids were Dave Filo and Jerry Yang. It was Yahoo. And so they yeah. received money from <laughs> Yahoo. And then he bet on five companies. I only know the four that worked, but it was AOL, Amazon, eBay and, and Yahoo. And so his career was made when he was 27. Right. And so I talk, we talk to David all the time and he'd give me these TV show ideas and I'd say, you can't do it because of this. And I give him my tech ideas. And he said, you know, in the same way that I'm never going to do a TV show sitting up here, you're never going to be in Silicon Valley unless you come to Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, when I was at NBC, I, I inherited NBC.com. I was on the board of our digital businesses and I really liked it. And, um, so I, I didn't know what the internet was about, but I knew that the internet was going to be something. And, uh, I went up, I ran this keyword buying company and then, you know, um, I went to Friendster. I mean, and, uh, uh, there were a lot of technical challenges at Friendster. Um, and, uh, that wasn't the big mistake. The big mistake was I met a guy named Mark Zuckerberg when he was 18 <laughs> and he, and he offered me 7% of the company for $700,000. And I didn't know you could invest in competitive companies, <laughs> but then I would have never met you and I would have never been in makeup. Um, and then, you know, then, then I left, I started my own company and, and, you know, there's something that kind of transcends all careers and, and you should never be in a company where your talent 
isn't the most important talent at the company. Mm. And in a startup, at that time, coding was really important. I would say user experience and, and now, um, uh, you know, acceleration of, of community is important. But at the time, you really had to understand coding. And I learned a lot. I can tell you a lot about how, uh, you know, I've talked to your co-founder about, you know, how things work technically. And, you know, I only know enough to be dangerous. But I think it's really important that you're at a company where the skill that you have is, is super valuable. You know, and, and that wasn't, wasn't quite the case. So it was, um, you know, it was a good lesson, though. And, and, and I do think, you know, now when I'm it cracks me up when I'm in a room with a engineer that works, um, you know, at like at Hearst and these guys would say, you can't do that. And I'm like, really? Let me tell you how you do it. And so I'm glad <laughs> I have that foundation of, of knowledge um, because, look, the lingua franca of what's going to happen going forward, everything's digital. You know, yep. and so if you yep. don't understand how these things work, you know, you're going to be the equivalent of like a migrant farm worker or a blacksmith. You know, you really have to understand how the technology works. That doesn't mean you have to code, but you just have to have a basic understanding how things work. Yeah, I love I've never heard it said that way, but it makes a ton of sense. Like you want to be like you want your role to be one of the core competencies of the business itself. Right. Like that's the area yeah. that you want to be in. Well, the irony is, I they had an opening to run Xbox at you know that at 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 um, uh, Microsoft, and I, I knew Bill Gates relatively well, and I I knew that they had a complete disdain for anybody who wasn't you know an engineer, so I yeah. didn't go there because I, I I knew I would be sad at the kids' table, you know, and I'd be like, <laughs> oh yeah. And, and as it was at Friendster, every day the engineers, I'd walk in and they would literally greet me by saying, how's our brain dead entertainment executive doing today? And I knew the day they stopped saying that was the day I had problems. But, um, you know, but then I ended up, um, you know, being at um, a company that I probably shouldn't have been at. But it was a great learning experience. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, no, that's a super cool experience. I had a similar, honestly, when I, this was maybe... I don't know, 10 years ago now. But when I was at my first job out of school, someone I knew really well got recruited to Facebook. And they tried to recruit me there as well. But I knew that within Facebook, you know, sales was not actually looked very fondly upon at the time. Mm -hmm. If you weren't a coder, you didn't matter. And that was part of the reason I didn't go. I was like, mm, no. Like, yeah. I, I, I sure would have loved those stock options from 10 years ago, but, uh, but uh, you know. Well, yeah, no, and, and when I worked for Ron Perlman, you know, I ran Marvel, and Ron, everybody that worked there, we had breakfast every day together, there were like 12 of us, and yeah. everybody was a lawyer or a banker, and then there were Jerry Levin, who ran Revlon, myself, uh, uh, Jerry Ford, who ran the bank, I kind of felt like they would pat us on the head and go, that's great, that's <laughs> you know, great, that was, that, and, and I, I mean, he was amazing to me, and he was great in terms of like it was an amazing job but i realized that i was like you know a sideshow act yeah know? yeah yeah, yeah. well so let's start talking about milk a little bit so obviously you guys have been uh you know super successful over the last five years i know things go up and they go down but in general you know your trajectory has been kind of off the charts um you know what were there any lessons from your, your kind of previous career that you brought to milk? Cause this is a totally new industry. First time you've really been kind of in a, in a, you know, in a brand that's focused solely around consumer products. You know, what, what did you draw with you? That's made, you know, that's helped you make mm -hmm. the brand successful. Obviously it's not a one man show. 
Well, so um, when I was at Marvel, I ran a trading card company. I ran a, a sticker company. You know, Marvel mm -hmm. had a toy company. So I learned that inventory is a cruel mistress. I mean, <laughs> it's a tough business, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I knew the I, I knew the fundamentals of it. And and Rossi, you know, who started Milk, was a really good friend of mine. And ironically. I introduced him to a Chinese friend of mine who oh, his family owns a bunch of retail, like the biggest, the third biggest department store in the world and, and a big shopping center in uh, Beijing. And I, we were going to, I was trying to get him to put a milk studios in and do a line like Mac in China. And we never got anywhere with it. Um, and then I was a, at a point in my life where Rossi asked me to help him and I had the ability to do it. So I said, okay, I'll help you raise money. And, um, you know, I got into it and I learned about makeup and this is the time when Too Faced is selling for a lot of money and, you know, It Cosmetics sold for a lot of money. And I started thinking about it going, well, wait, this is kind of interesting because um, there are these big companies who are really happy buying these independent companies and they don't seem like they're good at starting them. So you can sell these companies if you're, 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 you're good at it. And, and then, you know, I guess a couple things, you know, the, the, the best thing that happened to me is for, for many years and how I met you, I sat next to Diana Ruth, who did product, and I absorbed so much from being with her and learning about product. So that was that was really important. But the, but the big thing I learned is that the new marketing is two things, right? It's influencers, what we'll talk about or, or digital. And the other thing is in this new world, the new marketing is storytelling. And I kind of knew about storytelling, but you know, when you're 50 years old, your ability to think about what people 18 to 49 like, it's, you can say you understand, but you don't because you have a different life experience, right? And so this was a good way to kind of still use the storytelling in an interesting way. So the thing about Milk Makeup is, um, I think everybody did it for pure reasons. Nobody was doing it just to make money, right? Um, Rossi had this brand at Milk that had a great community around it. And he really wanted to do something that served that community. You know, Diana loved making products and understood products. And, and I, you know, Janet Gerwich, who I don't know if you know, but Janet was very helpful early on with me. And she said something to me that in makeup, it's not one thing you do right. It's a million things you do every day. You know, this is a product that people are taking, buying, putting it home in their bathrooms, putting it on their face. It's a very intimate relationship and everything's got to be right about it, right? There are hundreds of red lipsticks. If your red lipstick doesn't have the right feel in hand, the right brand when you show it, uh, you know, the right lay down, the right smell, the right texture, it's just all these things go into it. And, um, you know, so, so we, um, you know, I think it was good that we had this community and we had somebody like Diana and then the third thing I'd say is that we had Sephora, who was who really got it and got the brand. Um, so you know we kind of started off in a nice way with with Sephora and Urban Outfitters, and Sephora ended up working out really well. And we raised money, and I and I realized that if I left, they'd probably put a salesperson in the job of running the company if I left. And when I say that, um, uh, there's a, um, when Steve Jobs won the Harvard Business School Entrepreneur of the Year for the second time, they asked him, how did you do it? And he said, well, you know, when you, when you have a company, you, you start out with version one and you take version one to the board and everybody gets excited and it sells and everybody's even more excited. Then you bring version two and they're really excited and version two does better and version three and version four and about version five, right before you're going to present the new product, 
This guy in the corner says, or this woman in the corner says, hey, I just made a big sale in Europe. And all the business people turn to that person. And next thing you know, the second, next meeting starts at sales and not with product. And mm -hmm. then he made a joke and he said, you know, Gil Emilio, who replaced him, was a sales guy. And he said, where did Steve Ballmer come from? Sales, right? You stop being a product-led company. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think, I think the real key thing to Milk Makeup is we did a lot of stupid things that turned out to be stupid. And we did a lot of stupid things that turned out to be genius. And you can't tell what's gonna be what. You know, I, I was showing the original line to somebody and the three or four products that every editor, everybody in our company knew about beauty, said we're gonna be great with cooling huh. water, which was on the bottom row, the lowest shelf on its own, no promotion became our number one product, right? Huh. And so, so what I wanted to make sure we did was that we didn't lose the ability to take risk. And, and really what I did in entertainment was you took people who were a little crazy, super creative, and you tried to make a commercial version of what they did without screwing up who they were. And that's kind of what beauty is, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I saw it as my role to sort of make sure that Diana and Rossi, their, their, their craziness was sort of mitigated, but not stifled. You know, mm -hmm. and, and, and then what happened was I actually liked the business and, uh, we started getting more and more successful. And, uh, you know, then I started getting offers to do other beauty stuff. And so it's just, I guess I'm kind of a beauty person now. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I would say that Milk's biggest success is that we knew where our community was. We didn't build product based upon marketing stats. I mean, Diana's really, f you know, fond of saying I built products that people wanted, you know, and there are brands that were launched by big companies where you know somebody in marketing was like, millennials like three of these and these colors and we need to have this and that. Like artificial intelligence and algorithms regresses you to the middle. You won't fail, but you won't wildly succeed. You'll be in the middle of, you know, metaphorically the Peloton and the Tour de France and you're not going to, you know, you're not going to pass anybody. You're just going to be in the middle. Well, a lot of my dog might want to go out. Okay, no, we're Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I love that. I, I mean, there's so many nuggets in there in what you said. I mean, I think the intimate component, like I'd never really heard it described as that, is it's a very intimate product, because it is. Um, and then secondarily on the kind of being a product-led company, you know, the thing that we talk a lot about or that I talk a lot about is that the internet um, you know, amplifies whatever you're gonna do, right? So if it's really great, it's gonna amplify it in that direction. If it's really shitty, people are gonna figure it out really quickly. And that that actually hasn't always been the case when it came to products, right? In the past, yeah. if you had really good distribution and you had a lot of money, you know, you could buy all of Thursday night on, you know, NBC and you know, generate a lot of sales with a fairly mediocre product. Uh, but now that's not necessarily the case. So that's super well, cool. So what I would say is in the past, pre what's called pre-internet because it's going to be yep. internet's going to be the change yeah in the past you would say you know is it useful does it solve a problem does it have utility right mm -hmm. so you can't you're not going to buy a product that you don't know you have a problem for right then yep. the second thing was usability does the shirt fit nice is the car drive is the website good right and then in the old days as you point out you produce a bunch of ads there's no ratings no reviews and you just force feed the thing and it shows up in the center aisle at the end cap of your supermarket and it's a hit, right? Well, today 
it's got to have that solve problem solving. You know, it's got to be useful. It has to have good usability. But now it has to have this new thing, desirability, right? Because mm -hmm. if you know, with ratings, reviews, ingredients, that transparency, you can't produce bad products. What yep. digital does today is it rewards greatness, but it punishes mediocrity. Bad is gone. And, and, and you know, like that's, that's what you've got to do is you've got to create that demand where you'll crawl through glass to get something because there's too many options, you know? And, yep. you know, we were talking about Steve Jobs. Everybody knew about the Steve Jobs movie. But people didn't go because you didn't give people reason to go. Yet they waited in line to buy iPhones and all that stuff, right? Yep, so you, you've yep. got to figure out that desirability portion of it, and that's that's super important. And that's what you know the Milk brand did, the industrial design, the virtual merchandising with the gondolas that were different. It created this kind of like difference where we stood out enough that people were interested. Yeah, the the phrase I always liked there. It was from uh, Ian Rogers, who's the old chief digital officer at. LVMH, and then formerly the CEO of uh, Apple Music, and then CTO of uh, Beats prior to acquisition. He called it the hyper-efficiency of quality, right? And you can determine quality however you want to, whether that's desirability or otherwise. But it's, uh, yeah, the internet's a great amplifier. So let's let's talk a little bit about influencers, because obviously, you know, that's what a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this are in the business of. You know, you guys decided really early on that influencers were a thing. And that's been really reflected in your success. So I was looking up the numbers before this podcast. You guys went from the number 88th ranked skincare brand in 2017 to now the number 12 uh, by EMV for 2020, which is just you mean a color, color brand, color. Brand. Yes. Makeup brand. Yes. Makeup <laughs> brand. But um, go ahead. So what, 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 what made you decide that was really important? And then what do you think are some of the philosophies that led to your, your growth, right? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people that have decided it's important, but you know, there's hardly anybody that's done what you guys have done over the last four years. Well, you know, the thing about influencers is that it starts out as this black art where you think, oh, influencers. And in one of the areas where we made huge mistakes was that you know, Rossi knew a lot of famous people and he thought they were influencers. No, they're famous people, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and you can't, just because you're famous doesn't mean you can sell makeup, right? Because there has to be this credibility around what you're doing. And, you know, we tried in a bad way. We had no idea what EMV was. We had no idea what Tribe was. Yeah. We kind of, you know, like went on this fool's errand of trying stuff. And then, you know, uh, I, I met you and I learned about it and did some work and there was sort of a two-pronged approach. Um, one approach was that I really believe from working at Friendster and working in social media that, that trusted referrals were important and that was mm -hmm. incontrovertible. Um, but the other thing that was really clear and, you know, for all the companies starting out, um, the EMV that Tribe puts out is a uh, barometer, meaning a forecaster of a brand's health. And you can um, look forward and see if a brand is ascending or descending based upon the relationship of your EMV to your sales. And I, I bought into that pretty quickly because, um, not because I believed in that, but because I learned that every single strategic and every single VC was looking at some version of it. So I, it's like you, you can sit there and complain that it doesn't work, but if that's the currency people are going for, well, you better figure it out, right? And that was the first step. And the second step is we tried to get EMV going and it didn't get going. And then the third step was we 
brought in a team of people that were super experienced from benefit and they were really smart and they understood EMV and it was like, you know, we were able to dump the basketball. It was just this crazy <laughs> thing happened. Um, yeah. but, but, I, but I will, I will say, and I've told you this because one year you said, well, you guys done a good job. And I said, I think we've done a bad job because we lost that team that went someplace else. We had this civil war inside the company between the people that were just trying to drive EMV and the brand people. And, and I think that we did some suboptimal things for the brand that we, 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 we started developing products that were always on products so we would get more EMV. And they were products mm. that were somewhat antithetical to the sort of values of what milk makeup was, this fresh face look. And, yep, and yep. we were doing stuff. And, 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 you know, so we pulled back on that. And we've now, I think we're in a place now where, you know, we're close on the cusp of being a top 10 brand. We were top 10 brand, I think, once. But we're doing it, you know, not organic. We're doing it totally organically and we're doing it, you know, not sort of doing the artificial things to get things going. We're kind of doing it our way. And, uh, we, we feel really good about what, what that means. And it's, you know, um, from when NBC was owned by GE and I had to learn Six Sigma and all that. And the, the basic rule of Six Sigma is if you take people and you measure something and make them live up to a measurement, they will do better. Because yep. they want to be, yep. And, and so that's what it does. It gives us a North Star and every, we don't kind of go, oh, we were good last month. We had this event and that event. It's like, what did the event do? And it allows us to weigh those events, you know, and I'm not going to say that any, and you would neither say that any given campaign or post is accurate, but it's directionally correct, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's been really good, to, really good to focus us. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Talk to me a little bit about that organic versus paid argument. Obviously, you know, this is a discussion we have a lot. And I think there are a lot of brands that um, think that the only way they can win is if they're out paying influencers. But I think you guys are, you know, you're bucking that trend. Um, talk to me about your, you know, why did you guys decide that was the path? Um, and then how, yeah, just talk to me about it a little bit. Well, we decided that was the path through either naivete, ignorance, or hubris, or a combination of those three things. And when I say this next thing, it's going to borderline on hubris, and I don't mean it to sound that way. But there are certain brands that influencers don't want to be associated with or really don't care to be associated with. And we were fortunate at Milk that we had this patina around us from Milk Studios, the kind of people that were around it. And if you, you know, if you don't know what Milk Studios is, look it up. It's a really hot, you know, uh, content creation place. And, you know, that, that allowed us to do that. And I, I think it's, it's really hard to wade into the pool and pay these people, but not pay these people, you know, cause, cause people talk. And so you kind of have to be one or the other. And we are fortunate that to date, people seem to be interested in the brand at large, what we do and what the, the values, because we do stand for values. You know, we went out and this is not a brand that's just about making money. We've been very big on LGBTQ issues. We've never sexualized any of the models. You know, we've done things that have been, you know, we, we had a transgendered person on in our first gondola before Caitlyn Jenner. And when Caitlyn Jenner came, we looked like geniuses. And I tell, <laughs> I'll tell you, when we, when, when they, they put this person on, there wasn't a debate of like, let's, it was like, oh, that person has brown hair. It looks good. Let's put them on. It wasn't that like, oh, we need to have that person, you know? So it was a really organic set of values that I think resonated with people. And, um, you know, so I think we feel lucky that we're in that situation. But I, I, I do prescribe to, 
the EMV piece is a business, right? There is the creative side to it. And, and Tim and Max and Abby and the team, you know, are very good about sort of pivoting. We call the influencers, you know, content partners, you know, creative partners. And, you know, I think you were the one who told me this, that it, this is a numbers game. It's a relationship game that you, the more bodies you throw and the bodies almost like salespeople have quotas for these thousand influencers or these 500 influencers should generate 6 million and your 500 should generate 7 million, right? And that's how it's making people accountable. And it just, you know, it, it's a numbers game. And, and, and that doesn't mean you can just call these people up. You have to have a good brand, a good strategy, uh, a good way of approaching them, you know? Um, and I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, it's like big actors. You don't go up to a big actor and say, hey, I'm going to pay you this money and you should take the job. They don't care. Everybody's offering them $20 million. You have to know how to romance them into doing it. And if you're the last person that shows up, they're really, they're really not interesting you. And, you know, you said early on to our team, uh, you know, that, that we need to build these relationships and, and build them up over time. And I think I'm glad that you said that early on, that we focused on sort of mid-level and, you know, and, and smaller people that ended up growing. And also, you know, creating micro initiatives around uh, people around milk, uh, baby influencers, makeup artists that didn't amount to a lot. We don't have any one big person, but the aggregate of 500, 600 people gives us 3 million here and 5 million there. And, you know, so it, it just it's just really focusing and being deliberate that you have a path to get to those numbers. Right. Just yep, um, yep. Hope, hope. Hope is not a business plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, implementing measurement is obviously really critical. And then I think the the mistake that we see really commonly at brands, you know, you guys scaled it up. But one of the big things we see is like, you know, we'll see brands that have 15,000 influencers that talk about them in a given year. And they've got a team of two or three people. And it's like, there's no way that two people can manage 15,000 relationships. It's just not possible. Um, and on top of that, every time one of those people talks about that brand, right, and never hears from that brand, but then they talk about Milk and somebody from Milk personally reaches out, introduces themselves, thanks them for talking about the brand, asks them if there's anything else they'd like to try, right? That's just, that's where it's going. Like, that's why you're winning. Um, so it's really yeah. cool to hear it play out. I'm glad my, my advice from four or five years ago was, was mostly accurate. As much as I hate to say it, it was. Okay, it was really important <laughs> to what we did. You were, you were, you were a great um, mentor in this area. But you know, the thing you're saying is really true. It's like I, I look at social and influencers as kind of like a friend. And you know that friend that every time you see them is saying, "Hey Connor, can I borrow five dollars? Hey Connor, can you drive me here? Hey Connor, can you do that?" And if your if your social is basically saying, "Bye bye 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 bye," you, it's not fun. Right. And no, in the same no, way, no. if you're going to an influencers, will you post and like, well, what are you doing for the influencer? You know, and so um, before yep. COVID, we would do these workshops where we would um, help people learn how to shoot content. We'd help people, you know, Diane would come out and talk about how you start your own brand product development. Like it's a two way street, you know, and it really is. And, and, you know, you said this. I remember the first time you spoke to the team. It's about having a real deep relationship where you're not this carpetbagger that shows up. And, you know, no brand is cool enough to stand out amongst other brands that, oh, I'm going to promote you because it's such a great brand. You know, no, it's a relationship. You know, yeah. And, and you got to have those great relationships. Totally. Well, let's, before we get into it, one last question, and then we'll get into some fun end of show questions that you actually haven't seen. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. 
So, uh, but before we get into that, you know, you guys decided, so, you know, you said you wanted to stick around in the brand to ensure it was product led. Um, and I think this month is your, your one year anniversary of bringing on Tim as the official CEO of Milk. Um, what made you guys decide that you needed a new CEO? And then what, what was it specifically about Tim that made it feel like a right fit? Yeah, so we always knew we were going to bring a CEO in. And, I, and, and, you know, I made movies when I was never in the movie business, right? I was 25 when I started a TV network. And those things are pretty straightforward. You know, you I watched TV as a kid. I ran the NBC station <laughs> group. And it was because I you understood news because when I was a kid, I used to watch the news. I understood that at the end of this news, you, the two people there threw to the next people. Like I under, just understood it, right, as a consumer. I would say that that makeup, you need to have an encyclopedic knowledge of makeup. You can't fake it. You can fake it for a while. And, um, you know, we brought in this person who was really good at uh, influencers and um, Rossi, who's really good at throwing parties and things like that. We were launching Kush Mascara. And, and it wasn't just Rossi, it was the other women that worked in the company. And um, Rossi was like, we're gonna have Kush Mascara, we're gonna have Wiz Khalifa, we're gonna have this concert and all this stuff. And the woman just calmly looks at him and says, so you're gonna have influencers? He goes, of course, that's the whole point, you have influencers. She goes, okay, so you're gonna have Wiz Khalifa on a dark stage. Is he gonna be like holding the product? What's the opportunity for the influencers to take pictures with them? You're gonna spend all this money on this person and you're not gonna get any content. And so we shifted the thing so it wasn't a party with Wiz Khalifa, it was like seven stations. And each station had a benefit of the brand or, or the Kush product. And those were, you know, that's how we did it, right? So then um, uh, Rossi was like, yeah, she goes, but you're gonna have a party. And he goes, yeah, yeah, party for sure. That's what we do. We throw parties, we throw great parties. <laughs> and she said, um, did you ever stop to think that probably 60, 70% of influencers wear false eyelashes at night? So if you have a party, they're not gonna wear your mascara. It was like, that was like the drop the mic moment of like, <laughs> Oh yeah, you know, and and it's it's like there are all these nuances of you know you really need to understand the interdependency of one product to the next, you know. And I, I, I the story I normally tell I don't want to tell in public, but it, you know, like as I've learned how makeup works, you know, you need to be smart. It's not like you know, I, I Carol Hamilton who's been great to us. I asked her about uh, get us getting into the palette business and you know because everybody our investors like get in the palette business it's great because they were in two-faced like do it and and I, I went to carol i said carol i i just have a feeling that the palette business is not like throw eight colors in a pan in a thing like there's a science about it i would compare it to madden football that you do madden football and then every year you improve the cover two defense and every year you improve the linebackers and you just get better and better by doing it she goes exactly you know you get better through iteration and, and, you know, but from the outside, you'd be like, oh, I'll just throw a bunch of colors in that I like, you know, but it's scientific <laughs> and, yeah, and you, and you totally. really have to have that experience. And, and so, you know, uh, who, who, like you can get a certain distance by doing the things that you like, but to become a real brand, you have to have somebody who understands the nuances. And Tim was a guy who, you know, ran L'Oreal Paris. He had, he'd worked at um, a number of L'Oreal brands, worked in Singapore, worked in the UK, worked in Canada. Um, and, you know, it was funny because everybody who worked in mass um, just interviewed poorly. 
you know, for the most part. And yeah. Tim, it was plain that he understood makeup and uh, um, he, he understood makeup and he also respected the brand and he understood what the brand had to be. And then uh, as a person, I liked him. And actually, Rossi liked somebody else who was a woman. I said, no, we're going to hire this guy. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, we're going to hire this woman because I want a woman to run it. And then, unfortunately, the woman's um, father got really sick. But uh, Tim was the right person. And I've told that woman, even though your dad got sick, you probably weren't the right person for us. And I always thought Tim was right. But just to digress one minute so you get the feeling on the... Um, on the mass people. So this one yeah. person came in and um, I found him really impressive, really smart and mass. And he had been, uh, you know, a marketer that became head of a brand. And so um, uh, he, he had this thing in his resume about like um, uh, t doing a Instagram book that he published. So when Diana, who you know is our product person, I said, you're gonna meet Diana. And, uh, uh, you know, you need to, to like impress Diana because she's the person. And so I said, do not mention the Instagram thing because Diana is not going to look kindly on that. And the guy leads off <laughs> by talking about the Instagram thing. And so he's already in a hole. And so I'm trying to get him out of the hole. So I said, listen, um, you told me about Suss and Chuck's thing that you did, which I thought was super innovative. And can we talk about that? Because I have a better idea. Let me tell you about my most successful promotion. As a big idea, I ended up pricing everything at five ninety nine, and I thought Diana's head was going to explode. Like that's exactly <laughs> what you don't want to hear in prestige. So it, you know, but 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 Tim Tim really got the brand. He really got um, he he really got the um, uh, the business part of it, and understood the difference between prestige and mass. Understood makeup in a way that was you know really really uh, detail oriented, and uh, and you know you want somebody who's your CEO that is. Um, macro focused, but detail oriented. And he's both of those things. That's very cool. Well, let's get into the end of the show questions. Um, so first up, uh, you killed one of the greatest um, classics in Freaks and Geeks. Why did you kill it? So um, there's actually a documentary uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, okay. Yeah, and you can actually hear why I did it. Freaks and Geeks was the most painful thing. Um, it was a show that, like, when I read the script, it spoke to me. Like, that's how I grew up. I knew all those people. And, you know, at the time, it's amazing. And Judd Apatow deserves a lot of credit. And, and uh, Jake Kasdan. And, uh, um, shit, well, I got I to gotta redo this again because I can't. Who, who's the guy? <laughs> okay. um, I mean, the show was great because Judd Apatow and Jake Cassidy and Paul Feig did an amazing job and they weren't who they were at the time. You know, mm -hmm. Judd was really successful, but he was kind of had a hard time because he had whiffed on a couple of movies. And, you know, um, I think Freaks and Geeks, you know, James Franco was nobody. Seth Rogen just walked on the set. Uh, you know, Linda Cardellini, all those people were unknowns, right? And it, it was really amazing, and I wanted that to win. And you know, I've, and I've told Judd this: Judd became a much more hopeful person um, when he did had his kids, was married, had his kids, and he did Knocked Up. And you know, Knocked Up is basically a pro-life movie. Nobody yeah, sees it yeah, that yeah. way, but it, it's what it yeah. is. And 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 Judd became much more hopeful. And the problem with the show was not, it wasn't that the ratings weren't good, but it, it got dark at different points. 
And it, it mm. was one of the most painful things. And I will tell you that putting that show on, and it was not easy because the salespeople, my bosses thought I was crazy. Um, but I'm very proud of that show because it was different. And ironically, had there been such a thing as, you know, like HBO doing original programming and things like that, and we could run that show without commercials and it would have been a much better show. You know, yeah. so it was a little yeah. bit ahead of its time. So yeah. but that, yeah. that was that was painful for me. And uh, the guy who actually gets the blame for it, if you watch the documentary, is a guy I hired named Garth Anseer who went to Lawrenceville and Princeton and just didn't understand what the hell was going on in the show. So <laughs> There you go. Well, okay. And ironically, I, I urge everybody to watch that because Judd basically willed all those people to be stars, you know, Jason Siegel and all that, just to show, put it in Garth's face. And he says it in this documentary, you know, that he yeah. just wanted to prove that everybody was wrong on this show. I mean, the cast for that show was unbelievable in terms of what they ultimately went on to do. Um, okay. And, and, but oh, that's, sorry, all Judd. that's all Judd. That's all Judd. That's all, that's all Judd. You know, yeah, yeah. Judd telling J- Judd telling Jason Siegel, you're never going to be a leading man in a movie unless you write your own movies. And he wrote Sarah Marshall. <laughs> you know, and, oh, and, wow. And so, yeah. All right. Last question. And I think we're going to sign off. So Uber. So this is one of the most confusing parts of your LinkedIn is it shows that you are the co-founder and CEO of Uber, but it's not that Uber. Although you were smart enough to buy Uber.com. So tell me about the process, because if I go to uber.com, it now goes to the Uber that I'm thinking about. What did that process look like? What did the, uh, did you guys actually get into negotiations? How did it go? Well, um, when, when did you sell it? We bought Uber and everybody said, you can't have Uber because it has these connotations with the Nazis and this. And I said, no, I think young people think Uber is this cool thing, you know, and Uber, the car company has never had a problem with any, you know, um, uh, for those who are too young, the slogan for um, the Nazis was Uber alles Uber, which means every us over everything or something like that. And so um, we got a lot of pushback on buying it. Um, I liked it because it was a four letter word and it meant superlative and, and all that. And so my, my co-founder was my cousin and I, we, we, we bought it. And then when the company went out of business, the biggest investor was, was Universal Music. So we gave them the URL as a guest, mm. you know, because they put the most money in. And I am sure somebody there sold it for $150,000 <laughs> instead of point, <laughs> 0.5% of stock, which would have been, you know, it would have been like that guy who did the uh, graffiti at the Facebook, <laughs> the Facebook yeah. uh, headquarters, you know? So, um, yes, it was, um, yeah, it was, that was unfortunate. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, I re- really appreciate you taking out the time, Scott. I know I learned a lot today um, and congratulations again on all the success at Milk. Um, and I'll, we'll continue to watch from the sidelines as you guys, you guys dominate the world. Well, uh, I don't know that we're dominating the world. Uh, it's not <laughs> hyperbolic to say that you and your team have been a big part of our success in, in getting us going, getting us on the right track on this. So we uh, appreciate that. And uh, so because of that, you won't be on the sidelines. You'll be with us out there. So uh, <laughs> I love it. Help. Of course. Okay. All right. Bye, Scott. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today 
at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com. 